I invite you this morning to take a Bible with me, turn to a couple of texts, the Old Testament text for today and also the gospel text. Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the 31st chapter, verses 7 through 14. Read those words to us today. The Lord proclaims, sing joyfully for the people of Jacob, shout for the leading nation. Raise your voices with praise and call out, the Lord has saved his people, the remaining few in Israel. I'm going to bring them back from the north. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the disabled, expectant mothers and those in labor. A great throng will return here. With tears of joy, they will come. While they pray, I will bring them back. I will lead them by quiet streams and on smooth paths so they don't stumble. I will be Israel's father. Ephraim will be my oldest child. Listen to the word, you nations, and announce it to the distant islands. The one who scattered Israel will gather them and keep them safe as a shepherd, his flock. The Lord will rescue the people of Jacob and deliver them from the power of those stronger than they are. And they will come shouting for joy on the hills of Zion, jubilant over the Lord's gifts, grain, wine, oil, flocks, and herds. Their lives will be like a lush garden, and they will grieve no more. Then the young women will dance for joy. The young and old men will join in. I will turn their mourning into laughter and their sadness into joy. I will comfort them. I will lavish the priests with abundance, amen, and shower my people with my gifts, declares the Lord. Wow. And now turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, the first chapter of the Gospel reading today is a familiar one, the opening of John's Gospel, John chapter one. If you're with us this morning and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of this amazing section of the Lord's word. In the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. A man named John was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him, everyone would believe in the light. He himself wasn't the light, but his mission was to testify concerning the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. And the word became flesh and made his home among us. And we have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, has made God known. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Those of you who know me well know my top strength is achiever. Means I love this time of year. Um, I get to make all sorts of lists of the things that I plan on accomplishing in 2022. I've had a really hard time uh, the last couple of weeks trying to figure out what kind of resolutions and plans to make during this new year. I saw a friend's tweet this week that perfectly summarized the way I feel and have been struggling. The tweet said, I had no idea that 2020 was a trilogy. Uh, Some of you will get that joke later. (laughs) Probably many of you feel the same way that I do. Weary, uncertain, emotionally drained, stuck in place, feeling like you're running as fast as you can and yet not really going anywhere. It's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard to plan for and look to the future when that future still seems so uncertain and cloudy. The Old Testament text this morning, and I'd invite you to turn back to Jeremiah 31 with me if you would. The Old Testament text this morning from Jeremiah, like so many of the texts that we encounter each week in the prophets, is connected in one way or another to the challenges of life in exile. If I could try to describe or give the psychology of exile this morning, it would be something like this. Exile is that time when we can remember back and we can remember a time when life was not like it is right now. Life in that past was freer, it was brighter, it was more secure, it was more optimistic, it had possibilities and progress seemed just limited only by the size of our dreams. But in exile, things are different. In exile, things are compressed and limited, squeezed, if you will. Our life is no longer shaped by openness, but it's shaped by threats and by fears and by uncertainty. Something deep within us believes that at some point, things will be different. They have to be different, right? Yes, say amen to that. They have to be different. Amen. Amen. Yet no one is certain when that difference, that renewal will come. Or maybe in our moments of doubt, we wonder if they will be different. Maybe the wisest thing we can do, we start to say to ourselves, is adjust to life in exile. Perhaps life in exile is the quote-unquote new normal. But wait, like, no, right? <laughs> Something in us screams, we can't do that. It's, it's too depressing to think like that. And so in exile, you have to hold on to hope or hopes, even though they seem to get smaller and smaller and increasingly difficult to hold on to. Does any of this sound familiar for you? Um, three years ago, I wrote a book that I entitled Embracing Exile. I take it all back. Uh, What a stupid title. What an idiotic idea. (laughs) Do not embrace exile. I have chosen to reject all of that. Avoid exile at all costs. I hate exile. I reject it. 
I would be more than happy to unembrace exile um, if only exile would unembrace me. As we've talked about before, Jeremiah has 52 chapters, and 50 of them are unbelievably depressing. Jeremiah does not want to embrace exile. However, he is sure that exile is coming. And he's unafraid to call the people to be truthful about what they're facing. And even though he laments and laments and laments and laments and laments, as he laments, he is ready to face that new reality head on. But thankfully, there are two and only two hopeful and joyous chapters in this, the Bible's most morose and despondent prophet. And our text this morning from chapter 31 gratefully emerges from one of those two chapters, from what's called Jeremiah's little book of consolation. I, I can't tell you how much I hate to point this out to you this morning, but as I worked through the text this week, there were four words that jumped out that I want to talk about this morning that were especially significant in the text. And the part I hate, and I'm kind of glad the students aren't here and back yet, especially my preaching students, because the part I hate is all four words start with the letter R. Um, and I would like to point out, however, that even though they all start with the letter R in English, in Hebrew, the language of heaven, they do not start with the same letter. Um, so God did not intend this to be a sermon with, with pastoral shtick to it. But, um, but for those of you who love that stuff, I'm giving in today. There are four R's that I want to wrestle with this morning out of the text. If you have your Bible still open, let's go to verse 7. The first R is found in the seventh verse. The Lord proclaims, sing joyfully for the people of Jacob, shout for the leading nation, raise your voices with praise and call out, the Lord has saved his people. And here's the R, the remaining, the remaining few in Israel. In the NRSV, the latter part of that verse reads this way, save, O Lord, your people. And here's the R word there, the remnant, the remnant of Israel. And so the first word I'd love for you to circle if you have your text or to write down if you're taking notes this morning is the word remaining or the word remnant. This is not my favorite, by the way, of the R words that we'll think about this morning. In all honesty, remnant is a horrible and difficult word to hear. For one of the disturbing and heartbreaking and ugly realities that God's people faced in exile was the reality of death. Many who were in Jerusalem or in Ephraim prior to the exile in Assyria or prior to the exile in Babylon, many who lived in the time and went into exile did not come back. Some were killed. Some died of natural causes, but they died in a strange place that wasn't home, away from all that was familiar. Many of the exiles died separate from family and from their primary community of care and identification. And sadly, they died in exile without the knowledge or experience that something good would come after exile. They died on the way. One of the common practices for, com for conquering empires was to take the exiles that they brought into their nation and scatter them and separate them far from one another. This served two purposes. One was to repopulate cities or places that they had destroyed so that those would be repopulated. 
But the other reason you would separate exiles all across the empire was so that they couldn't get together and plot your demise. They couldn't get together and form rebellions. And hopefully, not only could they not plan to rebel, but hopefully in that scattered state, they would ultimately then get absorbed into the empire itself and integrate their life into the empire. As I have frequently pointed out, the primary fear of God's people living in exile is actually not death, even though that occurred for many. But their primary concern was that their children would become Babylonians. As I love to say, that they would wake up one day and their children would no longer be the unique people of God living in a strange culture, but they would be Babylonians who come to synagogue on occasion. So that their greatest, greatest threat was not persecution, but assimilation. Like Jonah being swallowed up by the fish. The picture is that this unique life of the Judeans might simply just be swallowed up and digested, if you will, absorbed into the homogenizing economy and culture of the ancient world's primary superpower. This has been, as we mentioned in prayer, this has been and continues to be a season of great loss for us as a church community. We've been keeping count in the office, and if our count is correct, we've lost 17 people from this church to death in 2021 several in just the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned. And as we enter this new year, there are three or four more people in end-of-life care. If we just expanded the circle out a bit to include your extended family and friends and neighbors, and especially if we included all of you who are part of the medical field or those in helping and community-connected professions who've had to walk with people in these last two years through so much grief and loss. The reality is that's a lot of death. A lot of death that we have dealt with and continue to deal with as a community. And I want to be careful here because my wife reminds me uh, almost weekly that there is only one capital C church and we just meet in many small C churches or congregations. However, I can't help but notice a lot of religious sociologists are beginning to refer to these last two years. There's a new phrase going around that they call it, they're calling it the quote-unquote great resorting or the great reshuffling. I've read or encountered studies in recent days that cite as many as 40% of people who were attending a particular church prior to the pandemic will have either stopped attending church or will have changed congregations somewhere in these last 20 months. And even if you're not a part of that reshuffling, without question, the disruption of the last 20 months has reoriented our habits in so many areas of our lives, but also in the ways that we participate and worship in our faith communities. All that to say, it is confessionally an odd time to be a pastor. These months continue to be such a mixed time of grief and celebration, of handling fears and frustrations, of welcoming new people and wondering where others have gone. Not to be overly dramatic about it, which I can be if, uh, without much work. But as I reflected on the text this week, I found myself deeply identifying, perhaps for the first time, 
with those in exile who, while still believing there will be life after exile, can't help but wonder who will be the remnant that remains when the exile is over. I suppose we should be encouraged, and I am this week, we should be encouraged that God promises that there will, there will be a remnant. All that God accomplished in his people in the past, prior to the exile, none of that's going to go away or be erased. God is still faithful. But nevertheless, without question, the people who emerged from exile will be quite different than the people who went into it. Which brings me to the second R. Go to verse 8. I'm going to bring them back from the north, God says. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the disabled, expectant mothers and those in labor. A great throng, and here's the R, will return there. In both Jeremiah and Isaiah, there are these wonderful passages like this one that imagine a return from exile. And I'm often struck that the prophetic language of return does not imagine, if you will, it doesn't imagine this long line of Judeans returning to Jerusalem all in formation, singing songs of praise as they go. That's not the picture. Rather, the prophets imagine all kinds of scattered people from all over the place who haven't seen each other in decades coming from every possible direction and suddenly being reunited. In other words, the picture of this return is not so much a kind of parade back to Jerusalem as it is a kind of gathering like an NNU homecoming of all of these former family and friends being gathered back together in joy or a great family reunion where we haven't seen each other in so long. But from every corner comes all these folks. I especially love that in their holy imagination, the remnant for the prophet that returns is not just the strong. In fact, pay attention to the list. In our text, it's the blind and the disabled who return. God has protected and cared for those that the empire overlooked. Or perhaps, like I mentioned, exile is this picture of Jonah being swallowed up by the fish. Perhaps the picture of these folks returning to Jerusalem is like the fish spitting up Jonah, barfing him up. That God's people will be reformed and remade out of those that the empire spit up and rejected. Like our name, the Church of the Nazarene implies, maybe when this is all over, we will end up being a community simply of those nobody thought anything good could come from them anyway bunch of Nazarenes. I also love that in almost all of the return texts, women in labor are always included. I, I find this strange. Perhaps like us, the prophets like stories of babies being born in the back of Ubers or taxi cabs. Or perhaps these baby delivering mothers are included as a reminder of those who will return from exile, and this is important, who will return from exile, but who did not give up while they were there. In fact, they just kept having children as a testimony of faith that God would indeed bring a new future. So that in these texts, having children, carrying them, giving birth for those in exile was a statement of hope, not that children are the hope of the future. Oh, help us. But they can continue to have children even in exile because they know that God will meet them and their children in God's future. Ah, that was really good preaching. And so we return. But of course, they don't return to Jerusalem quietly. They return participating in the third R for this morning. They return rejoicing. This is verses 12 and 13. 
They will come shouting for joy on the hills of Zion, jubilant over the Lord's gifts, grain, wine, oil, flocks, and herds. Their lives will be like a lush garden. They will grieve no more. I will turn their mourning into laughter and their sadness into joy. I will comfort them. They will come back rejoicing. We rightly love the text in Jeremiah and Isaiah that imagine the kind of parties that will take place when exile is over. Oftentimes, these texts not only picture the people celebrating, but the whole creation has even gotten in on the party. The trees of the field will clap their hands, the texts say. Perhaps more important to me than even these images of rejoicing are the images of also peace and shalom. For upheaval and disruption are replaced temporarily with singing and dancing, but they're replaced permanently with quiet and calm. There's an R word that doesn't appear in the text, but it has become a really important word for me these days. The word is resonance. Resonance is a word that pictures moments when everything is in tune. When the often discordant music of life is replaced with beautiful, resonant harmonies. We had a great time last night. Last night, for the first time during this holiday season, we were all together as a family. All the kids and all of their wives and significant others were there. My mom was there. We were gathered around the table eating just a pretty basic meal, kind of our favorite New, uh, new Year meal, potato soup and bread. Really fancy, those Daniels. But we spent dinner around the table going through our tribal rituals of telling old stories, reminiscing about those we are missing, and kind of dreaming together about what the days ahead might hold. And for just a moment around the table, around potato soup and bread, I could feel it. Resonance. Things the way they're supposed to be. These moments of rejoicing and resonance can often be too brief. But if we look for them, they are there. Moments of resonance, of reminders that darkness, sin, evil, and death do not get the last word. They're reminders that there will indeed be life after exile. The final R word comes from verse 11. And the Lord will, and here it is, the Lord will rescue the people of Jacob. Deliver them from the power of those stronger than they are. Here again, I found the NRSV even more helpful. Here's this, the end of this verse in the NRSV. For the, for the Lord has, and several R words here, the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. So if you're taking notes this morning, take your pick of any of those R words. Rescued, ransomed, redeemed. Each of these words is a powerful reminder that God has not abandoned God's people. God will move and take on any forces necessary to bring his people out of exile. However, I can't help but sense that this language is not about what God does for his people, but for what God does in his people as well. If I've lost you, let me go back there for a minute. Those words rescued, redeemed, ransomed, they are words that feel like less to me about the physical reality of getting God's people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. They are words that entail that there is something that has happened to those people. They have been redeemed, ransomed, renewed, rescued. All of that has happened in the process of this salvation. 
Maybe the most troubling verse to me, by the way, in this text is verse, seven, is verse 10. In that verse, the prophet states, the one who scattered Israel will gather them and keep them safe as a shepherd keeps his flock. The troubling implication is that God has not just, was not just involved in the rescuing and the redeeming, but the implication of verse 10 was that he was also involved in the scattering. I honestly don't know um, frankly, what to do with all of the theology of that. Pastor Diane and Pastor Brent will hold a seminar afterwards to straighten all of that out for me. I honestly don't know what to do with that, but, but it's clear that the prophets believe that the exile did not just have to be, was not just an unfortunate time of sadness, grief, and dislocation, but somehow God was involved in it. In the providential hand of God, this period of exile could also become a time of transformation in the lives of God's people. I know I have said this to you before, but, but when you think about the story of the people leaving Exodus, leaving Egypt, it is important that they got through the Red Sea and wound up in the wilderness for all of those years. And they weren't just there because the men wouldn't ask directions just seeing if you're still with me, but they were there <laughs> because you had this time period that was not just about getting Egypt, uh, getting Israel out of Egypt, it was about getting Egypt out of them. And again, the prophets look at this time period of exile, both in Assyria and Babylon as this time, not just looking forward to God getting us out of it, but recognizing God is doing something to us in it. And even being to the point of being grateful and seeing that it came from the hand of God, what God is doing in us in this time. And therefore, to be redeemed by God is not just to be brought out of exile, but to be transformed and made holy through it. The gospel text from today, John's profound and familiar prologue, proclaims perhaps the greatest mystery in the Christian faith. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. The word, the eternal activity of the creator, literally in the text, pitched its tent in our midst. We are a people who proclaim that God does not just simply wait for us on the other side of exile. The mystery of our faith is not just that God brings us out of death, but that God enters into death. Our redemption, our transformation does not happen once we get out of the body, but it takes place within the very bodies that God himself has taken on. That is really good theology. That one I can do on my own. I've just started reading a brand new book from a pastor named Brian Zond. Some of you may be familiar with them. His new book's entitled, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. Brian opens the book by describing why he and his wife, like a handful of folks from here too, every two or three years or so, they go on the pilgrimage starting in France and heading to the Camino de Santiago in Spain. And they've done this three or four times now, and they always start in a French village in the Pyrenees Mountains, and then 40 days and 500 miles later, they arrive at the cathedral in Santiago. Brian describes the reason he, he and his wife do this this way. He says, the old adage, it's the journey, not the destination that matters most, is particularly true of this modern pilgrimage. If the destination is the point, I can get to Santiago from anywhere in the world in just a matter of hours. 
But that's not the point. The point is the long walk itself and the simplified life of being a pilgrim. It's a respite far from the maddening crowd of modernity. For 40 days and 40 nights, our lives are reduced to the blessed singularity of walking from town to town, from church to church, from one lodging to the next, each day moving a bit closer to Santiago. We don't dart here and there, back and forth in a frenzy. We don't speed through the world of mechanized transport. We just journey steadily westward, never moving any faster than foot speed. Because the slowness is the point. Because when we slow down enough over a protracted period, we settle into a more contemplative state. The true destination of my pilgrim journey isn't Santiago but the stillness of soul conducive to contemplation. The point is that for Brian, pilgrimage to Santiago is an intentional practice to be reminded that the destination we're headed to is not as important as the people we have become when we get there. Let me say that again because it's the only good thing in the sermon this morning. In this time period we find ourselves in, the destination of getting out of it is not nearly as important as the people we become when we finally get there. The destination of getting out of this is not nearly as important as the people we become when we get there. And so as often frustrated, discouraged, and tired as I am in this strange time, I've been trying desperately to remember that the word became flesh and is dwelling among us. Exile is not a wasted time sitting in the great waiting room of life, hoping something new will happen. This moment, like the time Jeremiah speaks to in this scripture, can be our time of redemption, renewal, and reimagination. I sense in many ways, as frustrating as these last 20 months have been, that it has been and is becoming a really important time of redemption for us as a church. Over the next seven or eight weeks, um, I'm going to talk about a, a kind of vision for new creation that I've been working on with the staff for a little while. I know that there's busyness in January and February. I know some of you are going on women's retreat next week, and that is wonderful and all, of, and, and it's great. But I, a personal favor, I would love, even if you're not able to be here, if you would lean in to the next seven or eight weeks. I'm going to talk about what I think are the core values for us as a new creation people. And by the way, if you've been listening well for six and a half years, none of it is going to surprise you at all. In fact, most weeks you're going to lean over to the person next to you and go, heard it. (laughs) But I want to say it as clearly and as, with as much significance as I possibly can. Because I do believe God is doing something in us during this time period that is shaping us for what God has for us, not just in the future, but in the today. And so I'm really looking forward to the next several weeks. But this morning as we close... There's a realization that this rescue and redemption, this renewal, it is not something, it is certainly not something we do in our own strength. But at the same time, it is not something that we just sort of sit there and God does to us. 
God does not act in ways that just simply does stuff to us without our response and participation. Again, it's not something we do in our own strength, but this renewal that God is doing in this remnant that is going to return with rejoicing and with a whole new reality about who they are will happen because they will have responded to the God who is at work in their midst. And so this morning, as we close, I I want us to, to respond in two ways. This morning in the early service, we did a a major section of John Wesley, kind of our spiritual ancestor, if you will, John Wesley's covenant service that he would lead his people through each new year. I want to lead you in just a portion of that covenant. And I need to say to you, it is okay if you're not at a place in your life where you are ready to make this kind of commitment to the Lord. This may be a day, in fact, to listen As you consider becoming a person of faith, do I really want to get into this thing? This will let you know. Um, But as we enter this new year together, if you, in the deepest part of your being, are ready for all that God wants to do in and through us, as costly as that can be in our lives at time, I I would invite you to respond with me today. And we also will conclude around the table. I think it is such a significant regular practice for us to come to the table and be reminded that God is with us and God is with us most clearly in broken body and shed blood. That God is not distant from our suffering but has entered into it. And God is doing this renewing work in our midst but here's what he invites us to do, not just to look at that and celebrate that, that, but to take that into us and to be transformed by it. And so this morning, I want to invite you to respond with me uh, to this covenant. Would you respond with me? Let us give ourselves to the Lord in faithful commitment. As his servants, we must give up the control and sovereignty of ourselves to Christ. We must no longer give our bodies over to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but give ourselves to God. We should live as those who've been raised from the dead, and now the members of our bodies have been set aside, sanctified, to be used as instruments of righteousness to God. And by the mercies of God, let us present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Those who give themselves over to sin in the world say in their hearts, sin, I am yours. World, I am yours. Riches, I am yours. Pleasures, I am yours. But rather with the psalmist, we say to the Lord, we belong to you, Lord. We honor you. We dedicate ourselves to your service. In giving ourselves to the Lord today, we also affirm that we will be completely content in any kingdom service to which we are called. Christ has many callings to be fulfilled. Some are very easy and honorable. Others are demanding and menial, but they are all kingdom work. Some kingdom vocations seem to naturally fit our inclinations and interests. Others stretch us and make us uncomfortable. Some of the tasks of the kingdom are easy and fun. For example, the Lord encourages us to enjoy friendship with one another, eat with glad hearts, amen, and to receive with gratitude his blessings of clothing and shelter. Some of our duties are delightful and meaningful, such as rejoicing in the Lord or praising God. These are the sweet works of kingdom citizenship. But then there are other works of Christ that are difficult and call for self-denial. 
As servants of Christ, we must bear each other's burdens and hold each other accountable for our sins and take a stand for righteousness. Like the martyrs, we must confess the name of Christ, even if it costs us shame, reproach, or our lives. In the secular world and society, we may be asked to suffer for being radically countercultural. Learning to be in the world without being of the world may require us to pay the cost of discipleship. It does not matter what Christ expects from us. We must yield ourselves to his complete will. There is no renegotiating the terms of our covenant with Christ. I love that line. His covenant terms are simple and straightforward. It is all or nothing. Are you ready to be covenantal citizens of Christ's kingdom? Lord Jesus Christ, if you will take us into your house, if you will have us as your servants, we will obey you on your own terms. Impose on us any condition you please. Write your law on our hearts. Call us to whatever assignment you will. Let us be your servants. Call us to whatever kind of life you will, Lord, and send us wherever you will. Let us be vessels of silver or gold or vessels of wood or stone. As long as we may be vessels of your honor, we are content. If we are not the head, nor the eye, nor the ear, nor any of the nobler and more honorable parts of you employ in your body, allow us to be the hands, the feet, or any of the lowest and least esteemed of all your servants. Lord, put us to work, whatever you will. We will identify with whomever you want us to associate with. We are willing to work, and we are willing to suffer. Let us be employed for you, or laid aside for you, exalted for you, or trodden underfoot for you. You may make us full or empty. You may give us all things or give us nothing. We freely and heartily give all that we are to your pleasure and your disposal. Friends, the commitment to Christ that we have just made is the essence of true Christianity. When we have chosen God to be our portion in happiness, when we have laid all our hopes upon Christ, casting ourselves wholly upon the merits of his righteousness, when we have understandingly and heartily resigned and given ourselves to him, then we are Christians indeed. God, we thank you today as we begin this new year in all of its challenges and uncertainties. That you forming a remnant that you will return us to the place you want us to be and we will do that with rejoicing and we will do that redeemed and restored and renewed and so we invite you to use even these days and this time as a time to make all things new in us today. We covenant our lives to you because you have covenanted yourself to us. We struggle to be faithful, but you are always faithful. And so make us your people, we pray. As we gather around the table this morning, I'd love for us to sing just a song as we get our hearts ready for the table. If, if you didn't receive elements on your way in today, there are some folks, if you'll just slip up your hand, who will make sure that you have them today. 
Um, but all are welcome at this table, all who know they need the grace of Christ today. So I'd invite you to do that. Let's sing together as we prepare our hearts. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. you uh, to hold the elements out in front of you. Those of you even online who have received elements this week, if you would hold the elements out in front of you, let me pray a prayer of blessing. God, we hold in our hands very, very common things, bread and cup. In some ways, they are a reminder of the commonness of our own lives, our, our fragility, our inability to control the days ahead in our own strength. But they are also reminders that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You have taken on our commonness and you have invited us to participate in your spirit in a life that turns the common so uncommon. 
that turns the broken into something so holy. And so we respond to your covenant love with our love for you today. Take these elements, make them a means of grace to us today. May we become what we eat today. May we become the body of Christ. May we continue each day to receive your grace as you make us what you've called us to be. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He raised it. He gave thanks and then he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take, let us eat today in remembrance of him. When supper was over, he took the cup. He blessed it. He said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take, let us drink today in remembrance of a love that makes all things new. Maybe so, we pray today, make us the body of Christ. God's people said, amen. amen. Stand with me, let's respond to that together. Promise maker, promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Our provision through the desert, you see it through till the
lovely gathering of misfit remnants have listened well today. God refuses to allow all of our various forms of exile, even if that's our own sin, to have the final word in our lives. Promises that we will return out of that brokenness into the newness that he has. And there will be times of rejoicing and resonance because God will continue to redeem and renew and rescue us out of our brokenness. And so as we enter into this new year, who knows if the 2020 will become a trilogy or if this will be a whole new thing. But we do know this, God goes with us and is at work in us. And so may the God of peace himself, may he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful. And he will not stop until he finishes his work in us. God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.